Father, without the light of your word and your truth, we walk in darkness. Uh, but in your light, we see light. Uh, so we pray now that by your spirit, uh, you would fill us with wisdom and understanding to know you better. Uh, we pray that uh, the eyes of our hearts might be opened uh, so that we might know and appreciate and treasure uh, the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus. Uh, give us eyes to see the great vistas of your goodness once again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great diseases of our day amongst Christians uh, is the disease that you might call small picture Christianity. It's the spiritual disease that takes the vast picture of God and his purposes and his character and his plans and shrinks it right down so that it can fit into one or other little small container and then acts as if that little container was all that there was to it. It's a disease. It can be spiritually deadly. And I think it's very prevalent in this culture and this generation in, in epidemic proportions. It takes a whole lot of different forms, of course. Uh, it's constantly mutating into new strands and different versions, uh, but they all have that thing in common. For example, there's the version that you might call petty legalism. Uh, it's the version that takes the big picture of God and his manifold wisdom and grace and his vast saving mission in the world and shrinks it down to a few small religious rules uh, that we mark each other and ourselves on how successfully we keep. Uh, it obsesses about tithing your mint and your dill and your cumin. And at the same time, it completely ignores uh, the vast and weighty concerns of God's word. Uh, it forgets God's overwhelming grace and it shrinks down the demands of God's justice and his mercy. Or another example, secondly, and this one I think is particularly common in our time, in our culture, uh, another example is what you might call the small picture Christianity of therapeutic individualism. This is the version in which Jesus is thought of as if he existed only to heal my broken heart and to help me feel better about myself. So the invitation goes out, are you feeling discouraged and disheartened, inadequate, defeated, depressed? Jesus is the answer. He can give you the life you want to have. Or in recent years, that second one has mutated into a third version, uh, a more crass, materialistic version uh, that you might call uh, suburban aspirationalism. This one says, come to Jesus and he can give you the flat screen TV that you've always yearned for. He can give you the big house, the McMansion in the suburbs filled with pretty shiny things. You too can have a beautiful life and a beautiful wife as I do, as if Jesus were just a, a genie in a bottle and you rub the bottle with a few religious works, a few prayers, a little bit of exercise of specific faith. Uh, and he exists inside that bottle to fulfill your material aspirations. And there are a thousand other forms that it can take, this disease of small picture Christianity. Often, of course, inside that little bottle, inside that little box, are some good and true things 
partial truths, bits of scripture, a verse here and a verse there. Uh, But they're popped inside that container and the, the lid's put on and that becomes the totality, as if that was all there was of God and his goodness and his grace. One of the great tasks of Christian preaching, one of the key responsibilities of the preacher week by week is to open up the Bible in a world full of small picture Christianities, to open up the Bible and to be a means that God uses to keep vaccinating his people, as it were, to keep vaccinating his people against that disease of small picture Christianity in all its various strains. Now, the aim is to keep, to push the metaphor perhaps a little bit too far, to keep injecting into our veins, deep into our veins, into our bloodstream, the antidote of a big vision of God and his character, his grace, his mission and his purposes. And hand in hand with that, of course, to keep on equipping one another to do the same for others in our families, in our churches and the communities that God has made us part of. In the face of a thousand different versions of small picture Christianity, the New Testament keeps confronting us with a vision of a big picture God. He's not a God who's oblivious to the small picture. He knows Matthew chapter 10 when a single sparrow falls. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about the small picture. But he tells you that not in order to make you feel secure within a little cocoon of niceness. He tells you that, again, Matthew chapter 10, he tells you that in order to embolden you as he sends you out into the world to risk your life for his sake. Again and again, when you turn to the New Testament, you are confronted with a big vision of a big picture kind of God. We could turn, for example, to any of the opening pages of the four Gospels and see how in each case, each in its own way, the Gospel writers show us right up front how to connect the story of Jesus with the whole long story of Israel's calling and exile and restoration and the plans of God for the nations and the purposes of God for the whole creation. We could go to the very end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, and see it there. But the place... Uh, that I want to focus our minds on this morning is that passage that was read for us a moment ago, the book of Ephesians, right in the middle of the New Testament, and the vast picture that Paul lays out for his readers in Ephesus in the opening chapter of that letter. Paul is writing in this letter to communities of Christians in Asia Minor, in and around the city of Ephesus, who have quite recently come to faith in Jesus from a background of Gentile paganism. These are pagan background believers for the most part that Paul is writing to. The city of Ephesus where they lived or near which they lived in some cases was a city that was famous for being a kind of magnet, a kind of magnet for gods and the names of gods and spiritual powers. All the way back in their legends, all the way back to the Magna Mata, the earth mother goddess who in their stories fell to earth as a meteor Ephesus had ever since been absorbing the names of gods and incorporating them into the mythologies and the rituals of the city. And along the way, hand in hand with pagan religion, was the magic industry, which thrived in Ephesus. You only have to read Acts chapter 19 to get a sense of how integral the magic 
industry and the industry of religious knickknacks was in that city. Uh, the magic industry, which revolved around the saying of sacred names. You could go to Ephesus and you could buy little papyrus books full of spells and amulets to tie onto yourself and sacred objects. And you could use them to try to get prosperity in your life. Uh, if you wanted to have success in business or if you wanted to marry a certain person, um, if you wanted to make an enemy suffer for something that you think they might have done to you, then you'd buy a magic book and you'd recite, invoke the names of the gods, as many as possible, and you'd say a spell. And the great danger for the Christians in that context was that they would just continue unthinkingly conforming to that culture and that pattern, the ways of the city that they lived in. And they would continue as pagan background believers that they would continue in that same pagan mindset and that same pagan lifestyle that they walked in before they knew Christ. Uh, but with a little bit of Jesus inserted in amongst all the other sacred names and sacred powers. That was the great danger for the church in Ephesus. So Paul writes to them to counteract that danger, to remind them of the huge the uh, overarching picture of what God had done for them in Jesus and of the fundamental change in identity and lifestyle that that called for, that the change that took place for them when they were caught up into that picture by being included in Christ. Paul reminds them about the big picture of the, the story of the purposes of God that dwarfed the temple of Artemis in the middle of the city, that made the magic books of the Ephesian Grammata look like silly little games. What is that plan? It's a plan, Paul says, chapter 1, verse 10, to sum up everything, everything without remainder, to sum it up in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth, under the headship of the Lord Jesus. It's a plan to bring blessing to people of all nations through him, just as he promised way back in the Old Testament to Abraham. And Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians by reminding them of that great plan of God and of the incredible blessings that have come to them and, for that matter, to us by being included in him. Verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's a great way to begin a letter, isn't it? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're in Christ, Paul is saying, then in, in him you have every spiritual blessing there is. And then in verses 3 to 10, he spells out in a bit more detail what some of those blessings are. He tells us the story of the universe in the form of a kind of catalogue of the blessings that are ours in Christ. In the first place, Paul says, there is the blessing of election. Uh, election is, of course, just a fancy word for being chosen, just like we had an, elec an election a few weeks ago and chose ourselves a government. But in this election, the one the Bible's talking about here, God is the one doing the choosing. And it's about him choosing us to be his people. 
Verse 3, verse 4, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, that is in Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. At the very start of the list, at the beginning of it all, Paul points us right back to before the creation of the world, to the beginning before the beginning. And he says, way back then, before we had done anything either good or evil, before we'd even been born, before the world had even been made, God chose us in him. God chose us to belong to him in the Lord Jesus. It's a thought that's meant to be humbling, isn't it? Most of us are kind of comfortable with the fact that we chose God. Um, Maybe you grew up in a Christian family, you got to a certain age where you were old enough in your parents' estimation to make some decisions for yourself about things and you took a long, hard look at what the world had to offer as far as you could perceive it at that stage of your life and you decided that, no, you were going to choose not to follow that path and to serve those gods but to follow the Lord Jesus. You repented and believed, as Joel put it earlier. Maybe you came from a non-Christian background and somewhere along the line you heard about Jesus from a work colleague or a school friend or from someone at a, at a holiday club that you were brought along to or a Sunday school teacher or a scripture teacher and you, you checked it out and you asked questions and you weighed it up and you examined the evidence and you decided, having investigated what it would cost and measured all it all up, you decided to follow Jesus. And it's true, of course. You did decide to follow Jesus. You did repent. You did believe. But whatever the story is in your case, whatever the path that you followed into saving faith in the Lord Jesus, into a saving repentance from sin toward God, whatever that story is in your case, the Bible says if you love him, it's because he first loved you. If you chose him, it's because he chose you before you were even born, before the world was even created. The little story of how you came to choose God, that wonderful little story, is embedded in the vastly more wonderful story of the God who chose you and who set his affections upon you, who wrote your name in the book of life, who made you his own, The story of how God chose you and chose you not on your own in isolation, but to be amongst his people, to chose you as part of a great, vast, multitudinous us upon whom God set his affections and made his own. But there's more than that. He didn't just choose you to belong to his people. He adopted you to be part of his family. Verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. You didn't just get a passport into the nation of God's people. You got an adoption certificate into his family. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. When you became a Christian, you became a child of God. You earned, you didn't earn, you were granted by grace. 
the right to call God Father. You were adopted into all the privileges that go with being part of the family. You gain a share in the inheritance. You become an heir of the family fortune. And you gain not only inheritance in that adoption, but relationship. A relationship with a father who loves you and who cares about your every need. Adoption in him as his sons through Jesus Christ. Election, adoption, and thirdly, redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It's that word we saw graphically illustrated for us with a bike chain. Yep. Redemption is a word that means being bought out of slavery into freedom. Uh, the chains loosed, the price paid, freedom obtained, out of slavery to sin and death and the devil, because the price for our freedom is paid in the costly love of God, in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. Another way of saying it, according to the second half of the verse, is that our sins have been forgiven. Our debts have been cancelled. The debts that made us subject to slavery, to death, and to the evil one. Those debts have been cancelled. The written record that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. Our debts have been cancelled because God in his wealth and generosity has paid everything we owed and more. Election, adoption, redemption, and then finally verse 9, revelation. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What it's saying is that God, if you like, has, God has taken us into his confidence. He's brought us into the situation room, the control room of the universe, and he's spread the maps and the plans out on the vast table in front of us. And he's shown us what it's all about. He's told us, made known to us, what this world is for, what it's designed for, what its purpose is, what our lives are about. And he's shown us that the purpose of it all revolves around his son Jesus. It's about bringing everything in heaven and on earth under him. That's what this world is about, and God has pulled back the curtains for us and shown that to us so that we can start to learn how our lives are meant to fit into that story. That's the picture that Paul paints for us in this first paragraph of the letter to the Ephesians. It's, it's one long sentence in the original, one vast, long uh, torrent of revelation. It's a picture of a God who has a plan for this world, a plan that he worked out before the world began, a God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, a God who knows each of us by name and has called us and chosen us and has given us the incredible blessing of including us amongst those um, good and rich and wise plans in the Lord Jesus. But that's not all. There's another twist in the tale of what Paul says, and it's there in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, Paul writes, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Have you worked out who the we are and who the you might be? There's a we, including Paul, who were the first to hope in Christ. And there's a you, which is actually, I suspect, most of us here this morning, a you who also came in to be included in Christ when the gospel came to us. Who's the we and who's the you? Well, for Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, uh, and this becomes clear in the following chapter, I think, it's we Jews and you Gentiles, you pagan background believers, you non-Jews. Because all these blessings that Paul talks about in verses 3 to 10, election and adoption and redemption and revelation, all of them were originally Jewish blessings. It was the Jews who were originally God's elect, God's chosen people. It was Israel that was originally called God's son back in the book of Exodus. God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, therefore let my people go. It was Israel that God redeemed with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. We heard about it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Bring them out of the smelting fires of Egypt. Redeemed by blood that was smeared over the lintels of the doors of the houses that they lived in. It was Israel that God revealed himself to. Of all the nations in the world, God chose this nation to reveal his Sabbaths and his laws, to reveal his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. It was Israel that God revealed himself to. All these, all these blessings, election and adoption and redemption and revelation, were originally Israel-shaped blessings, Jewish blessings. But in the Messiah, in Jesus, they have come to us Gentiles too. That was always God's plan, to bring blessing to all the nations through Abraham's seed. And so in Jesus, we, the you of Paul's writing, uh, we Gentile believers have come to be part of the chosen people of God. We have come to be adopted into the members of God's family to share in his inheritance. We have come to be redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. We have had made known to us the character and the purposes and the plans of God. How did we come to be included? Verse 13, in the plan of God, we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believed it. And God gave us the spirit as a seal to say that we belong to him too. So how does that all affect the way that you and I live? Well, there's two kinds of effect that it might have. On the one hand, it might wash over us once again like water for the thousandth time running down the, the, the back of a duck. You know how it used to you can be? I, can, I spent the first 17 years of my life hearing these things. I, I trust I was hearing them. I was sitting in church. I presume they were being spoken of. I spent the first 17 years of my life hearing and hearing and hearing these things, learning even to talk about these things in the right kind of way, and yet never really allowing these things to get under my skin at all. It never really soaked in beneath the surface. For 17 years... It was words, it was talk. Or on the other hand, in God's kindness, it might sink in through the skin. Because when it actually sinks in, when it gets through your skin 
and into your bloodstream, when these truths permeate your being. It revolutionises the way that you see everything. It creates a kind of revolution, a little bit like the revolution that happens in people's understanding of the universe at the time of Copernicus. You know the story? Copernicus was the astronomer back in the 16th century who completely transformed the way that the people of his day perceived the universe they lived in. Up until Copernicus, the dominant theory was that the Earth was the stationary centre of the universe and that the sun and all the stars and the planets made their way in elaborate, elaborate dances around the Earth. And we stood at the centre of everything. And Copernicus was the one who said, maybe the things that you see when you look up through a telescope at the heavens are explained more simply if you assume the opposite. That it's the earth that goes around the sun and not the sun around the earth. It took a while for people to be convinced because it was such a a revolutionary idea. But eventually people were persuaded and the whole way that we perceive the universe was changed. That's how it is with Ephesians chapter 1 when it sinks in to your understanding. Because our natural human way of perceiving everything is with ourselves at the centre. My choices, my emotions, my opinions, my aspirations, my career, my family, my ambitions, my ministry, my plans. And we might ask the question, where might God fit into my life? And if you're religious, you find a place for him somewhere on Sunday mornings, perhaps on Wednesday evenings as well, or in a Bible study during the week, you kindly make room for a little bit of God in your life. Uh, Just as the Ephesian believers might have been tempted to think they could make room for the name of Jesus amongst all those other names that cluttered the religion of the city. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1, the big picture that he paints in these verses is something that turns all that completely on its head because it says to us that God and not us is the centre of the universe that what matters is ultimately his election his choices his plans his purposes his will and the decision that really matters is not Where might God fit into my plans, but where might my life fit into God's plans and purposes? And when you ask that question, the answer you come up with is, I fit into God's plans because in his grace he has chosen and included me in the Lord Jesus. And the reason I am here and the reason I am in Christ Jesus is for the praise of his glory. That is what my life is for, that is what is about. Paul uses that phrase three or four times in these verses. Verse 3, the whole thing starts off, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he has adopted us as his sons to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse 6, verse 11, Paul says, We Jews were chosen as God's inheritance in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might might be, might exist for the praise of his glory. And finally, we Gentiles too, verse 14, have now been included in God's people for the same reason, in order that we might be to the praise of his glory. All of our salvation is God's work from the 
the beginning to the end. Uh, from the creation, before the creation of the world when he chose us to the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross so that we could be forgiven and adopted into his family. Right through to the very last day when we see God having summed everything up in Jesus and arrayed everything beneath his feet. All from start to finish, the work of God. And all the glory belongs therefore to him. And as individuals, we owe everything to him. So our lives are about that too, about bringing honour and praise to him for the gloriousness of his goodness and grace. You may have heard of the composer Johann Sebastian Bach, um, who lived and worked in Germany three centuries or so ago, famous for many things, one of which was for the little signature that he put at the bottom of the manuscripts of his compositions. At the end of every work, every little piece, great or small, that he wrote, the three letters, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. Only to God the glory. Only to God the glory. It's a good way to live your life, isn't it? In a world where we tussle for reputation and uh, put ourselves out there to be known, in a world um, where Facebook and, the, uh, and Twitter have given us all kinds of magnifying mirror lenses to increase that whole tendency towards seeking the glory of others and the opinion and seeking to make ourselves known in that wearying, anxious competition for glory and for reputation and for fame. In that kind of world, those three little letters of Bach cut through, don't they? Relinquish that weary, that anxious, that toilsome quest to make yourself known, to broadcast your own praise, to upbuild your own reputation. Let go of that. Drop out of that race. You weren't created to live that way. Enjoy the great freedom of revolving around the son of God's grace and of saying with Bach, only to God the glory. That's what I exist for. That's what my life for. All your work, every job, every job you do at work, as if you could write at the bottom of that task, Solidar Gloria, SDG. Every assignment you do at school, Solidar Gloria. Every relationship, every conversation, every word, your language, your TV viewing, your career decisions, all part of a life that signs off at the end of each page. This is done for God and for him alone and for his glory. Solideo Gloria. One last point, one specific outworking of what we've said so far, and it's a point about prayer. Uh, how should we speak to God and come to him in prayer if we have understood this big picture of God's plans and purposes? How should it transform the way we relate to him? If God is the one who's at the centre of the universe, if he's the one who works all things out in accordance with his will, if he's the one who's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, how should that affect the way we pray ourselves and the way we pray for one another when we come to him in prayer? How do you pray for the person who already has everything? It should be a real dilemma, shouldn't it? How do we pray for ourselves and our fellow believers, having been granted every spiritual blessing already in Christ? I suspect the dilemma rarely occurs to us at all, uh, perhaps because we're not so focused on spiritual blessings anyway. We're much more interested in material blessings. We're much more interested in using prayer as a kind of magic 
uh, ancient Ephesus style, to get God to fulfill all our plans and ambitions. So we pray for each other that life will go smoothly, uh, that we'll, uh, uh, that our friends or our children will get into that university course and get that job, um, find that new house to buy, uh, that they'll be able to make the agonising choice between whether it'll be in Five Dock or Dremoyne or Balmain, but they'll pass their exams and that they'll get well whenever they get sick, uh, much like with the Ephesians, the Ephesians with their magic spells. All of which is vastly different from the sort of prayer that Paul models for us here in the end of this first chapter of Ephesians. Listen again to how this prayer begins as Paul prays for his fellow Christians. Verse 15, for this reason, that is in light of this big picture of God's plans, verses 1 to 14, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. How do you pray for the person who has already been given every spiritual blessing in Christ? Well, in the first place, verse 15 and 16, you pray with thanks. You keep saying thank you to God for them and for their conversion and for the work of the Spirit in their lives. It seems kind of obvious, uh, but we don't do it. Now, often we wait till their funeral to give thanks to God for them. We've been given everything, and so we have much to say thank you for. And then verse 17, Paul moves from thanking to asking, and there's four things that Paul prays the Ephesians will know. First, that they'll enable, God will enable them to know him better, verse 17. Second, verse 18, he prays that they will know the hope that they have in Christ, that God has called them to. He prays that they will know with real certainty and confidence that their home is in heaven, that their future is secure, because God has a plan to gather all things up in Christ, and he's included them in that plan. What happens when you don't have that knowledge, when you don't have that sure and certain knowledge of your hope, when you live as if you had no hope, um, as if it was only for this world that you, we had hope in Christ. When you have that sort of mindset, when you don't know the hope that you have in Christ, you live aimlessly and selfishly and fearfully. You live just to maximise your pleasure and comfort and safety in the present. You live for your career, your house, your car, your pleasure. What happens when you do have that knowledge, when you know the hope that he's called you, you live purposefully and you live sacrificially. Now, the third thing Paul prays for the Ephesians is that they may know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. Now, inheritance language works two ways in Ephesians. Uh, on the one hand, verse 14, Paul can use it to talk about our inheritance that we hope for, that we look forward to, that's been promised us in Christ. At the same time, verse 18, the Bible speaks about the inheritance that we are to God. Um, God's people are his inheritance, his treasured possession. And Paul prays for his fellow Christians that they will know how precious they are in God's electing love to him. That they will know that they are God's valued, cherished possession. And they'll know the riches that they are in Christ to God. And finally, verse 19, he prays that they know, will know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That they will live as people who are absolutely confident of the power of God, the power that he showed when he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, the power that marks out Jesus as supreme over every name, every authority, every power in the universe. Two last questions. First, is that how you pray for others? Uh, do your prayers resemble that kind of prayer that Paul models as he prays for the Ephesians? 
Is that how you pray for your fellow Christians? Or do you only ever pray, uh, as I often lapse back into, um, do you pray like me in prayers that lapse back into little prayers that God would enable all the little things in life, would iron out their shirts, that all things would go smoothly, uh, that the inconveniences, the wrinkles would disappear, and that they'd be comfortable in this world? Is that how you pray for others? And closer to home, is that what you pray for and long for and set your heart on for yourself? Do you realise how much you have in Christ? And do you long to appreciate it and treasure it more so that your life is shaped by a deeply grounded, deeply treasured knowledge of God and his grace and his purposes and the security that you have, your place within his plans. Let's pray that God would once again uh, fill our understandings and our hopes uh, with that big picture of his goodness, his character, his plans and the way we've been included in him. Let's pray. Father, we ask your forgiveness and your mercy on us for the times when our minds have thought that we contained you in such a small picture, uh, when we've spoken to you and related to you, lived our lives as if you revolved around us, as if you fitted uh, into our convenience, the times when we've lived lives that uh, were in all kinds of details, worldly and half-hearted, uh, short-sighted, uh, forgetting what we've been set free from and forgetting the hope that we've been given. Please make us people, we pray, who know you, people who know the hope that we have, people who know the price that you set upon us as your possession, your treasure, people who know your power. We pray that as you fill our imaginations, our understanding, our memory, our hope, with these big pictures, uh, that you'd make us people um, who are different from our neighbours who don't know you, uh, not just in a few small ways, but in vast and unmistakable ways, that our lives would be oriented uh, toward a different end, that it would be evident that our lives revolve around a different star, uh, that we belong consciously to the great story of the Lord Jesus and your plans and purposes in him. Uh, please remind us again of that um, day after day and week after week and set our hearts to live in light of these great truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.